With that said, friends, we are into the second week now of our Christmas in Focus series. Now, of course, there's the surface meaning of keeping Christ the focus of Christmas. That should go, in a sense, without saying. We know, because we've experienced in our lives, the fact of the matter that there almost seems to be this conspiracy against the quietness, the stillness, the silent night of Christmas. We just get all these um, invitations. We get all these pressures put upon us. We put all these expectations on ourselves. We have to make our house look like it's the best one in the neighborhood. Our tree has to be better than last year. We have to get a gift for this. Per I mean, so we just put, we just, we do this. We do this, right? We heap this stuff upon us. And this is what I always like to say. It's good stuff. I mean, I love gathering. I love gift giving and gift receiving, maybe even more the receiving part. I love good meals together. I love seeing family and friends. It's all good stuff, but let it never supersede or take our focus off the real reason for the season. It almost sounds trite now, but it's true, right? We need to keep the focus on Christ at Christmas. But we're going a little bit deeper, right? We all get that surface stuff. But what, where we're going this Advent season is we're looking at how the scriptures were bringing the Christ into focus more and more over the course of the centuries. And in particular, we're looking at three offices of Jesus Christ and how they were coming into focus up until the celebration of his incarnation and his birth. The focus was becoming clear through the work of the prophets. The prophets were bringing the word of God to the people. The priests, the priests were representing the people before God and making intercession on the behalf of the people. And the kings were to represent God and to rule with justice, with righteousness, and to bring peace over the land. All of this was pointing towards all these promises to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, right? In the past, we saw that the offices didn't really cross over. There's a couple little interesting stories here and there, but really they were separated, they were distinct, but they are all pointing to the one who would bring them all together and that one would be the Messiah, the Christ. And we talked about last week how the Christ is literally the anointed one and how prophets were anointed and priests were anointed and kings are anointed. And so it makes sense then that the anointed one would bring all of these together. Before we get into the new material, let's just pick up where we left off last week. The good word of the prophet to us. Jesus is the word. More, he's not just bringing the word of God. He's the word made flesh. He embodied, incarnated the word of God. The word became flesh. And we just reiterated some of those words of Jesus, the prophet, speaking over us. Jesus is speaking a word to you, to saying, to saying I know you and I love you. And I've come to you to forgive you, to draw you to myself, to make you my own, to make you my brother or sister, to declare you righteous so you can stand in and with the family of God so that you will know God as your heavenly father, so that you will be built into a holy dwelling, a temple of the people of God. And we just finished our Ephesian series. And if there's, well... I probably say this a lot. If there's anything we should take away from Ephesians, then I'll say like 10 things, you know. But <laughs> it's true, it's true. But, but if there's one thing we really want to be driving uh, home through that Ephesian series is that God declares you a sinner. 
saint. Amen. Thank you so much for listening and taking notes. Woo! You guys are awesome. Saints. We are declared saints when we stand in Jesus Christ. Our righteousness is in him. Our life is in him. It's all in him. And he declares us a saint. So if nothing else, hear that word. Declare that over yourself. Live into that identity. Jesus, the word made flesh, calls me a saint. Part of the family of God. Well, that's not the end of that famous statement from John, right? He says, the word became flesh. And then what's the follow-up there? Little quiz here. Anybody remember? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this is going to point us to where we're going to be going today. That word dwelt, it actually was more reminiscent of the word tabernacled. It appears that God's desire from the very beginning, from the garden through the plan of redemption, calling Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to the 12 tribes, bringing them into a promised land, working through the kings, the prophets, the priests. Ever and always, he was revealing that his heart was to be with us, to dwell with us. Is it any reason then that, or, or said so there's good reason that we understand that Jesus is declared Emmanuel, God with us. In many ways, we can say the Bible in three words, or one word if we just remember what Emmanuel means. God wants to be with us. And he was tabernacling, he was tenting, he was traveling, he was always wanting to be with and among his people. When Jesus, the word, became flesh, it was so that God could finally and fully begin living into the with us desire of his heart. God has always wanted to be with you. Maybe that flips the script a little bit for how you've thought of life and this journey of faith that so many of us talk about. We talk about being on our faith journey, finding out things about ourselves, discovering things like we're on this journey. The Bible, in a sense, flips that script and says much of the history of humanity and much of the history of our lives, if we're honest with it, has been, frankly, you've been running away from God. You've known the things of God. You've known what it means to love God and love your neighbor. You've known what it would mean to live a holy and pure life. You've known what it would mean. And yet you've, in many ways, wanted to run away from that. It's been God who's been chasing after you. It's been God whose heart has truly been to be with us. And we're going to begin to see that coming to its fulfillment then in the work of Jesus Christ, our priest. Now... Last week, I had mentioned that it is the Christian New Year, that the Advent season kicks off the Christian New Year. Let's keep that in mind. Let's hold that awareness uh, in mind here as I want to point us, bring us way, 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 way back to the kind of the inauguration, the beginning of all this priesthood stuff. Um, let's understand now as we kick this off that our lives, as we organize and order them around following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we, in a sense, inherited that from the beginning where God was calling his people to order and organize their life around following him. And they did that, we know, through seven feasts or festivals. We read this in the beginning of the book of uh, actually Leviticus chapter 23. It says, these are lasting ordinances for you that were pointing to their fulfillment that would come in Jesus Christ. And they were just to simply to organize their life around these seven feasts and, and festivals. I just want to say one thing uh, about that before we move on uh, in deeper into the material. Um, let, me put it, let, me, let me put it this way. I think that Christians have the best of intentions 
whenever they say, we aren't religious, we have a relationship with God. Have you ever heard that? I don't like that. I don't say that often. <laughs> and here's why. It's not entirely true. And I don't think one is exclusive of the other. It's not that, oh, I have to pick. I either get to be religious or I get to have a relationship with God. No, our religious practice is an outworking of our deeper relationship with God. Uh, can we just be mature and say it doesn't have to be exclusive? The people of God were always to be religious in the sense that it was a way of life. Religion is to encompass everything. It was their whole way of being, their way of existing, their way of ordering their calendar, their way of organizing their day, their weeks, their years, while they would eat, how they would dress, how they would enter. It's a beautiful, holistic vision of life, the life of religion, the life of following God, the life of being dedicated completely to him. Should it not be the case that if we are completely devoted and given to God, that it should impact how we start our week. Congratulations, you're starting your week here in worship. How we organize our time, how we organize and understand our year, how we would interact with one another, how we might eat and drink or not eat or not drink or how we'd interact or not interact. It is just simply to cover all things. And so I say that to say, I, I think we're maturing and growing deeper in our faith when we say it's not religion or relationship, it's a relationship with God that organizes our whole life. We see this profoundly and deeply in God's organizing his people from the very beginning. I want you to organize your whole life around these festivals. By the way, isn't that awesome? I want you to organize your whole life around seven parties, around seven celebrations, around seven times when you get together and you just pour out the praise and the worship and the glory and the honor. I don't think we party enough as Christians. And you can hold me that. You can, you can, you can hold me accountable that we don't party enough as the people of God. We should be the best partiers in the world because we have the greatest thing to celebrate and that is forgiveness and life now and forever in Jesus Christ. Partying, celebrating should mark our lives. Very interesting too, what I was reading this week. That word that is the, the um, translated feast or festival, the root of it, is also translated elsewhere as a rehearsal. A rehearsal. Every one of those feasts or festivals, every one of these things that we celebrate as Christians, Christmas and Easter and Pentecost and more, it's a rehearsal. It's like that rehearsal dinner. What does the rehearsal point to? It's not opening night yet, right? It's not the main event yet. It's not the big reveal yet. We're rehearsing for something yet to come. The people of God from the beginning were rehearsing for something yet to come. And we know that came in the birth of Jesus Christ. And now we know as the people of God who celebrate the rehearsal fulfilled in his birth, we are yet celebrating the rehearsal of his return. This is the heart. This is the core. This is what Advent is all about. We party because the rehearsal came to its fulfillment when God became incarnate in Jesus Christ. And we're going to keep on partying until his promise return. I'm getting excited. Is anybody getting excited with me? I'm trying to, again, I can like try and get you worked up, but you know, you got to be willing to go there with me. We we are a people who practice partying because of the work of God and his promises fulfilled. 
And it's always been that way. And so I want to be more religious. I want to be more of a festival guy. I want to be more of a party person for Jesus. That's what God is inviting us all to do. Okay, all that said, here's another interesting thing. About two months ago was the beginning of the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. How does the new year begin for the people of God? How did it begin? With the blowing of the trumpets, the call to attention. Wake up, attention everybody, we're starting the new year. What happened about two months ago in this Western Hemisphere? The end of the harvest season. Think about this. God's year, our year with God, our cycling with God, our going through with God, it begins out of rest. It begins with Sabbath. So many people here, and, and, and I, I, again, we say these things a lot, you know, like, we're working for the weekend. God is inviting us again to a very different kind of life where we work from our weekend. We work from our Sabbath. We work from our worship and our rest in God. And so the new year begins with the harvest coming in and the land laying fallow and everybody just taking a break. And they blow the trumpet, they get everybody's attention, they say, guess what we're going to do now, everybody? We're going to take a break. We're going to get some rest. And so they call everybody to the attention and they take a big on glorious break. And then they do what's called the 10 days of awe. You didn't know you're going to get like a whole lecture on like Jewish history and festivals and stuff. It's going somewhere. It's, uh, I think you'll like it in the end. Stick with me. The 10 days of awe, 10 days of fasting, 10 days of repentance, 10 days of um, confession, 10 days of sitting and basking in the reality like this. God, you brought us through a new year. You are so faithful and good. Oh, God, you're bringing us into a new year. I wonder what it holds in store. God, you've been faithful to all of your promises in the past. I wonder what promises you'll be fulfilling and how you'll be good, to, true to your word as we live into these coming days and weeks. God, where you, so, so people just take 10 days to deeply rest and contemplate and you gotta love just stand in awe. Stand in awe of God. My people, I commend you. Take the time, take the rest, take the space that you need to create some awe in your life to just stand in awe of God and all he has done and all he has promised to do. That 10 days of awe then culminates in the holy of holy of holy days, the, the, you know, the Super Bowl, the World Series, the Stanley Cup, the whatever your sport is, fill in the blank. It is the big one. It is, anybody know, anybody know, anybody know? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And we're going to spend a little bit of time now breaking down the Day of Atonement and what it meant for the people and what it now means for us through its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and his work as the high priest. So turning to, uh, you don't have to turn, you can get on the screen, or you can turn to Leviticus chapter 16. You're going to see a title there about the, the, the Day of Atonement, uh, the Day of Yom Kippur here. And it's a, it's a huge chapter. I'm not going to read, you know, like, like the, the whole thing here. But I'm going to go through a couple verses to, to get it started. Uh, here's how it starts. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most 
holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. I think one more verse here we'll read from the Israelite community is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. We'll just pause it right there. Last week when we talked about how Jesus' ministry was foreshadowed in the life and the ministry and the work of the first prophet Moses. Well, one of the things we know that Moses brought was the word of God. And part of that word was how they were going to move into the promised land and how God was going to abide with them through the tabernacle, his dwelling with them, how that would eventually lead to the building of the temple. But if we read through those uh, first chapters of uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and in through Deuteronomy, we're going to find an enormous section on this tabernacle, this place where God would dwell and meet his people, how God's presence would actually be there. And the space between heaven and earth would become so thin that, again, it's called the most holy of places. And over the course of time, it would be that and only once a year would you ever go into the holy of holies. There would be the broader tabernacle and the gathering. And then uh, you'd have the, the holy place, which would be like this 15 by 15 by like 60 foot thing. And like in that 45 foot section would be like burning incense and these things that would continue to offer to God. But then there was that holy of holies, this little cube, 15 foot by 15 by 15, kind of perfect square, the holy of holies. And only once a year would the high priest be allowed to go in and make atonement for the people of God. And so begin to picture this scene. Again, as the people come and they celebrate, they've blown the shofar, the trumpet, they've started the new year, they've had 10 days of awe and rest, and the very important now, if we're going to get this year right, if we're going to move forward with God, we have to be cleansed. We have to be forgiven. We have to atone for all those things that would be offensive to a perfect and holy and righteous God. And so they say that even during the tabernacle period and this time in the history of God, uh, right after Moses and coming into the promised land, the nation uh, was hundreds and hundreds of thousands. So you can picture hundreds of thousands of people all gathered around in this scene. And then one man would take front and center stage, the high priest. And that high priest would be all decked out in some of that garb that we just read a little bit about. And what is happening in this scene is this one person is becoming the representative, right? This one person, in a sense, is going forward and everybody, in a, in a sense, is saying, you are me, I am you, you am I, you know, however you want to phrase it. We are all putting it all on this one person. Every one of us. You know, hundreds of thousands, all of them saying, we stand in agreement what happens with this guy right now is happening to us. That's another thing that I could give a whole other message on, but I promise I'll keep preaching it for years to come so you don't have to get it all today. <laughs> 
when we think so much in our individualistic terms of faith, which we are called to an individual and personal relationship with Jesus, we miss the communal aspect. That God was always calling people, and he was always calling peoples, a nation, a group. He's always been calling us. We got into that in Ephesians. We are called to abide in Jesus Christ, our union with Jesus Christ. But we were called to be a part of the body of Christ. There, there's something powerful being experienced in the collective whole here. Where everybody is in agreement. We are collectively doing these things. I only say that to encourage us to ever think more and more. Particularly in our very individualistic Western society. How am I connected to a part of something bigger than just me? Where is my role in it? What is my part in it? How am I celebrated in it? What role do I play? But how am I part of bigger than something that's just my little life? God has always been working through individuals, <laughs> like the priest here in this case, but also through the whole people when they're in agreement. And we all are putting it on this one person. I would just encourage us, again, because our default is the individual, that we need to just begin to think much more in terms of the collective, the group, the body of Christ, what we do together as a people. So that is what's happening with this in, the, in this scene, that everybody comes into agreement that we are all in on this and we need to get atoned for. Now, here's how I've done this. Whew, okay, this, this, this could be one of those like preaching into the afternoon. I promise I will, you know, I'll, I'll get us out of here. So in due time, I, the, the easiest I could do though, the easiest I could do was break it down into 12 easy steps for atonement. And, that, and, and again, I'm skipping over whole chapters of the Bible, but I've been able to break it down because of astute theological study and reflection. <laughs> 12 easy steps for atonement according to the old way. And you're about to get it right now. Here's how the old way works in 12 easy steps. I couldn't memorize all this stuff, so I'm going to have to read through some of it here for you. Number one, the high priest washed and changed clothes, put on the sacred undergarments. Yes, we're literally talking about holy underwear. Yes, he put on his holy underwear, got washed, got clean. Incidentally, I will say this, and you're going to say too much information, George. I've always had preaching underpants. I have always had a special outfit when I get up on Sunday morning and I get ready to preach. I've been through several pairs because I'm, you know, this ain't my first rodeo. <laughs> but there is, my wife is urging me to stop. There is something about getting dressed for, you know, for, for doing what you know you're called to do, though. There is something about this. I'm washing, I'm cleansing, and I'm literally girding up my loins for what God is calling me to do. In your own way, I would encourage you to do it. Whether it's putting on maybe a cross around your neck or a ring on your to, to, in a sense, gird up your loins for what God is calling you to do and the task that he is bringing you to. That's what's happening here. This guy is simply getting ready to say, this is very important from my head to my toes and everything in between, what I'm about to do Everything about this matters. Okay, I won't make that long of a point on every point, because that's only point one. Two, he sacrificed a bull for himself and the priests. Three, he went into the Holy of Holies with the bull's blood and incense, and he sprinkled the blood around the ark. Take note of this. Where did the sacrifices happen? In the Holy of Holies, at the altar? Never in the Old Testament is anything ever killed on the altar of God. 
That was pagan worship. Bringing people, well, bringing, well, yeah, I guess we could say that, bringing things, but also bringing people. And people. So God's altar was always to be pure and set aside. The sacrifices happened outside of the tabernacle, outside of the tent. But the blood, the sign of life, was brought in to ritually cleanse and purify then the altar of the Lord. So the blood was brought in to cleanse, ceremonially cleanse the ark. Four, he went outside and cast lots for two goats. One goat would become the sacrifice and the other would become the scapegoat. We'll come back to them in just a moment. Five, the priest sacrificed the goat at the burnt offering altar, went back into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled some of the goat's blood there now. Six, he went into the tent of meeting and he sprinkled more blood there. Seven, he went back to the burnt offering altar and sprinkled some more of the bull's blood for himself. We're not done with that bull yet. And then the goat's blood for the people. Are you remembering all this? You're going to be tested on this later, so take note. Uh, eight, now on to the scapegoat. He went into the courtyard. I'm going to stop here for this one. This is, we're going to come back to this and I'm going to play a I'm going to noodle on this one a little bit more in, in, in the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ. What he would do very significantly here, so what has happened is one goat bore the sins, atoned for the sins of the people. What happened to that goat just a moment ago? Were we paying attention? Yeah, that, that goat, it didn't go so well for that goat. That goat got sacrificed, blood sprinkled on the altar, sins being atoned for. Then he went back outside and he took that second goat, that scapegoat. There's something about the atoning for the sins, but now there's something about the guilt of the sins of the people. And so the priest at this point would take both hands and he'd lay it on the head of the goat, the Azazel, and then he would confess the sins of the people. We don't know about this ceremony. It's it just sort of like this gap. Of all the things they tell us, this is one thing that's interesting. I was like, I wonder what happened on that prayer. They're just like, he confessed their sins. I don't know if he like went into great detail. Like, forgive Leroy, that guy, he's messed up. Like, like he had a bad year, you know. Like, I don't know if like got specific. Sorry, I'm just picking on the new guy here. So, um, uh, you know, or, or if it was just like, God, you know we're guilty. Take it away. And so he would confess all those sins on that goat. And then the scapegoat got away. They took that scapegoat and he was led out into the wilderness and basically kicked out. Now there's all kinds of stories and thoughts on what happened to the scapegoat. Um, a lot of it is just sort of noodling on what could have been and there's different ideas on it. But we know this much. The idea was the scapegoat took then the guilt of the people and basically was like, you're gone. <laughs> You're out. The sins have been atoned for, and now the guilt is gone. Send it out to the wilderness. Send it out to the desert. Get it out of the presence of the people of God. We don't have to live with that guilt any longer. It's not done yet. Let me power through the rest of this. A different priest took that goat away. Then he had to come back and wash himself before he could go back to the temple. Ten, the high priest went back to the holy place, removed the special clothes, came out, took another bath, and put on his normal priestly clothes again. Eleven, he went to the great altar and sacrificed a ram as a burnt offering for himself and another for the people. And finally, step twelve, 
all the sacrifices, the bull, the goat, the three rams. I think I got the, I can't, I can't be sure of that, but I kind of had to go through and add it all up, reading through Leviticus, were taken outside of the camp, burned. The priest came in and washed again before joining the people. And then the people's sins were gone. Woo, right? Celebration. And they did. They celebrated. They whooped it up. They had a great time. They literally had a party after this. They said, our sins have been atoned for. We are forgiven. Our guilt has been cast out into the wilderness. We are a free people. We can celebrate clean, pure, righteous, standing before God. Only the bad news. The thing is, guess what? They had to do it again the next year and then the next year. And, the, and the, as great as it was, and they just had to keep doing it over and over and over again. Until, until the time would come when it would be fulfilled. Because the whole point of this was saying, I'm pointing to you towards something greater yet to come. This is all just your rehearsal. This is your practice. The fulfillment of it is yet to be revealed. And we know that the revelation came on Christmas morning when Jesus Christ was born. God started pointing to its fulfillment. He appeared to Mary and said, Mary... You are highly favored among women and you are blessed and you are going to give birth to a child and that child will be the son of God and you will give him the name, not Joseph after the one you are engaged to, but you will give him the name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And Mary inquired, how is this going to be? I'm a virgin. We haven't consummated the marriage yet. What is happening now? And the angel, you know, in, in abbreviated terms here says, this is from the spirit of God upon you. Because when God is upon you, God will be with you and God will then be with Emmanuel. He'll be with us through that child to be born. And Joseph was going to divorce Mary quietly, but an angel appeared to him and said, no, 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 this is the work of God fulfilling what has been promised from long ago. The child born to you will be the Lord, the savior. The fulfillment of the promise that came through David the king. We're going to get into that next week. Hope you come back for that. And you will give him the name Jesus because the angel just had to keep reinforcing the fact, the reality that this baby would save their people from their sins. And then we follow Jesus into his launch into ministry and his own cousin John, the one who is to prepare the way for the fulfillment of all these things. He looks at Jesus and he says, behold the what a strange thing to say to your cousin. What a strange thing to say to anybody. Behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. We know that the time came when Jesus stood before a ruler in a temple built after man and not God. And Pilate said, I find no fault in this man that you brought to me. I find nothing wrong with him. And yet what did the crowd say? They shouted. Before they. Let me, let me point this out. They did. They did. Before they shouted crucify. They said take him out. 
Who else did we just talk about earlier that got taken out? The scapegoat. They said, take him out and crucify him. And just like that priest that would ceremonially cleanse himself so often, so throughout this, says that Pilate washed his hands. Says, I'm cleansed of this for this one that has no guilt in him, and I find no reason to crucify him. But that you say, take him out, that you say, crucify him. He was led out and led to that cross, nailed and died, spilling his blood to cover for our sins, taking our guilt outside so it would be banished forever. Oh, friends, are you starting to see, you starting to see the beautiful story of Jesus, the great high priest who would fulfill what had been promised all along. And so this beautiful embodiment of the people being cleansed from their sins, but had to go on year after year after year after year, never fully and completely done, would be finished in the work of Jesus Christ. That is one of the reasons why we read so many times over and over in the scriptures, where did, what did Jesus do after he rose from the grave and ascended into heaven? What did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. We know that sitting down at the right hand of God the Father is an imagery of the king, in his position as ruler over the kingdom. But what else do you, when you sit down, just think about this one for a minute. What else do you, when you sit down, you sit down when, when it's finished, right? When it's done, when the work is complete, when you don't have to do any more, whenever it's all said and done, you, you sit down. And that's part of the beautiful imagery you have in Jesus, the priest who ascended to heaven and sat down. And declares to us, in my work now, guess what? It's finished. It's finished. Your sin can be finished. Your guilt can be taken away. It's all done. There's a whole book in the New Testament that I'm going to preach through now. No, I'm not going to. A whole book in the New Testament, Hebrews, that's basically like this like commentary on Jesus the high priest because the people of God were so in awe of this that came to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. They were just so blown away by this. You know, they had the sense of like, like they, were, they were just in awe. I mean, it was their like 10 days, their year, their life of awe as they were putting together, oh my goodness, how Jesus Christ fulfilled everything that it all had been pointing towards. It's a beautiful book. It's a complex book, admittedly. But let me get to the right verse here. No, I'm still in Leviticus. Here we go. But Hebrews chapter 4, the end of Hebrews chapter 4, we begin to see the transition, that turn to how Jesus' work as the high priest is going to be fulfilled. You got to get like a few more minutes with me? I know I'm going long today, so... How often do I say that? You good people, you're the best people ever. Um, this is what it says in Hebrews chapter four. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. The high priest, there was at least two qualifications of every high priest amongst many more. But these two were absolutely paramount. First, the high priest had to be a person. <laughs> you can't send a dog in to do a man's job. You can't put the cat into the Holy of Holies and say, represent us. You know, No, like key number one, it's got to be one of us. If you're going to represent us, you got to be one of us. The incarnation, 
Christmas, what we celebrate, he will become one of you so that he can do the job he's being called to do. Step two, so you had to be a person, like you had to be human, step one. And step two, you had to be called from God. And what do we read over and over in that Christmas story? Called by God, ordained by God, chosen by God, the son of God. Jesus, our great high priest. Oh, I got to get on with it here. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Here it is then. Let us then approach God's throne of judgment. Sometimes I mess up Bible readings on purpose. Have you noticed that? I notice I do that a lot. Let us approach the throne of God's wrath. Let us approach the throne of God's anger. Isn't it good news that our God sits on a throne of, please say it, of grace. He sits on a throne of grace. He sits on a throne of grace. He sits on a throne of grace, of love, of mercy, of compassion. Our God sits on a throne and what he declares from that throne, the good word that goes out from that throne is grace upon grace upon grace to you, my people. He sits on a throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, I gotta drive it home. I'm really good at once. And Christmas is a time where we think about our once. Um, I used to write magnificent Christmas wish lists when I was a kid. I would get the perfect balance of like, I can't ask for too much or they'll know how greedy I am, but I'm gonna ask for a lot and then they can decide. I mean, I was, I was terrible. I mean, but we all really think about what we want at Christmas and we can want some good things. I want another new bike. I always want another new bike. I want new skis and new boots. I want to get rid of my hoopty out there in the lot and get a new car. I mean, I want so much stuff. I can want with the best of them. But that's not what we're promised at Christmas, right? That's not what this season is all about. But what the season is all about is it is promising us what we need. It's promising us what we need. And what do we need more than anything else? We need mercy and we need grace. They've said, you know, that mercy is, you know, not getting what you deserve. And that's a good word. It's a good word to not get what we deserve because when we're honest with our lives, we deserve some of that judgment, some of that comeuppance, <laughs> some of that answering for. But we don't get that with Jesus. What we get is more grace. We get mercy. We, we just get sort of the slate, you know, wiped clean. We get what was coming to us taken off the table. But then Jesus, I'm going to offer you more. Now you're going to get grace. And we used to always teach our kids God's riches at Christ's expense, right? But that's good. I mean, that's Christmas. But we get even more. We approach him in our time of need. And we don't just get mercy, we get grace. We get God with us 
we get to be with God, and with God we get righteousness, we get forgiveness, we get our guilt taken away. With that, I got to say, Leroy and Julio, let's come on up and let's drive this home and take this out with a little bit of worship. But as they do, friends, I, I want to take us back to all this imagery that we've just covered here. In particular, I want to draw our attention to those two goats, the one that paid the price for our sin and the one that took the guilt away. I would encourage you during your Advent season, your own little season of awe, as we come into this new year with God, reflecting upon his faithfulness in the past and where he's taken us into the future, if you're carrying with you any sin, I want you to know that it has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. But perhaps what some of us need more coming into the new year, because maybe we've just not thought about it in these terms, Maybe what we just need to do is take a moment here in worship and to kind of put our hands on Jesus Christ metaphorically and say, please take this guilt away from me as I come into this new year. I know that I need that this year because I've been carrying too many things with me in 2021. I've been carrying some hurts. I've been carrying some resentments for some things where I felt that I was wronged. I've been carrying some pain from relationships that became very hurtful to me. I've been carrying some disappointments as I look back on my life and I see where I'm at and I see where I'm going and things just don't always work out like you planned. I've been carrying some things and it comes to me, my attention that maybe I just need to call them for what they are and to say I'm feeling guilt. I'm feeling the weight, the guilt of this on me. And it's time to put them on Jesus and say, take them away. Free me from this. I don't want to carry this any longer. I don't want to go into the new year with this any longer. I don't want to go on walks and find myself ruminating over this any longer. I want to think about your goodness. I want to think about your grace. I want to think about your blessing. I want to think about my amazing wife and my amazing family amazing church and the amazing blessings that you poured out on me take that guilt away as we come into the celebration of God with us let me pray heavenly father I thank you so much for atoning for our sins in Jesus Christ the great high priest who was not just the great high priest but became the lamb to take away the sins of the world and I thank you so much for removing from us now the guilt the weight the oppressive weight of the wrongs that we've done, the wrongs that have been done to us, the wrongs that happen through a broken and fallen world. Remove from us, remove from every brother and sister, remove now from your people as we come into this celebration that you are with us. Remove the sin and the stain of guilt by that precious blood of the Lamb. Pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Let's worship.
不对劲。